You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, the 20th of May, and I come to you once again from Baltimore ahead of the 147th edition of the Preakness Stakes. Much more on that from Donna Brothers a little bit later in the program. It is a balmy morning already here in Baltimore. Temperature set to get up to 94 degrees for the running of the Preakness. Uh, I'm sure the horses would prefer a little cooler. I certainly would. It is nonetheless an intriguing addition, much more of which in a few moments' time. But it's a classic weekend in Europe as well. And as my voice begins to struggle under the pressure of the travelling in the early mornings, I'm delighted to welcome into the show Jane Mangan, who's casting her eye over the Irish 1,000 and 2,000 guineas in the Tassels Gold Cup. Uh, Jane, good morning at a much more sociable time to you. How are the declarations looking? The declarations are strong and it's balmy 12 degrees Celsius here in Southern Ireland where I'm very comfortable and yes, it's a more hospitable hour of the morning we're recording, but the declarations have just come through for Sunday, a solid eight running in the Tadastas Gold Cup, state of rest, already a Group 1 winner this season. He's declared along with Lord North, good to have Frankie de Tory and John Gosden back in Ireland. Last year's winner, Helvic Dream, accompanied by Broom and Alan Kerr for William Haggis. That is a good renewal of the Tatterstalls Gold Cup and 14 fillies will line up for the Tatterstalls uh, Irish 1000 guineas. No real surprises here. You've got history and Tuesday for Aidan O'Brien accompanied by Lullaby. Um, Agartha for Joseph. Homeless Songs uh, gets a run. Moigler and Dermot Well. They've skipped Newmarket. They've skipped France. They've come here. Fozzy Sachs for Mana Estrella. Um, purple pay, as you mentioned earlier this week for William Haggis, that expensive purchase from France, two million. Let's see if it pays off. And James Ferguson's mise en scène, that makes for an extremely good uh, Sunday. But of course, Saturday will always be a uh, native trail. He's 11 pounds superior on official ratings. The 2000 guineas, it looks like the hat trick is well and truly on. Is it his race to lose, Nick? Well, I, I think it is. I mean, can you, you will have a better idea than me as to whether there is a genuine threat to this horse in this race. He is three to one on. Could you actually argue that that's, that's not a bad price given how far in front of all the others he seems to be? It's, I don't know if three to one on is a good price about any horse, but he's, he's extremely, extremely talented. I can't underestimate how much a fan I am of this horse. I know you're Mr. Krebus. I'm Mrs. Uh, Native Trail. But Buckaroo is a good horse. He's probably the main contender for me because when he quickened up in the Bally Sacks over 10 furlongs, it showed a turn of foot. The connections suggested he should come back to a mile. He came back to the mile last time um, over course and distance at the Curra, and he, he travelled oh so easily. It, it was He was a, a different class to his rivals, many of whom actually reopposed in the skinnies. And Buckaroo is still in the derby as well. That would be a Joseph-ish thing to do as well, wouldn't it? If, if he ran well in the Irish guineas, he'd wheel him round again in the derby. No problem. No problem. When they're fit, the O'Briens run their horses and it usually pays off. But he's a fascinating rock out of a Galileo. So maybe it surprised a few people when he showed the gears that he did to basically come widest of all in Leopardstown, head his Bedeal inside the final furlong and then just 
get beaten on the shadow of the post. Pisbadil has been in the uh, news headlines for different reasons this week uh, that Frankie Dettori will now ride him at Epsom. And if he is a fancy for people at Epsom, then they must be uh, of interest to see how Buckaroo gets on tomorrow. Okay, so who wins the Irish 1000? Dermot Weld has been waiting, waiting, waiting and waiting with homeless songs. He missed the guineas. He missed the French guineas. He comes here. He gets good to yielding ground, which we heard from Fiona Craig, the owner's racing manager the other day. They seem to feel she wants just good or just the easy side of good. Uh, Tuesday was third in the English Guineas. History's in there as well, as you mentioned. What do you think? I, I'm a big fan of Homeless Songs. I think that uh, Tuesday is the likely favourite, but I uh, think history could be the value bet. For me, she's an extremely likeable filly. Uh, she beat a Garza and Honey Girl when they met at Leopardstown. And I'd say there's more to come from her. Good to see Mise en Seine. She had very good uh, juvenile form last year. Purple Pay, what can she do from France? Listening to William on your podcast during the week, he's very sweet on hers. Now that's a look ahead to the racing at the Curra this weekend. And we'll be hearing a bit later in the programme from Armando Duarte, who bought Alon Kerr, one of the big fancies for the Tassels Gold Cup. But first of all, let's turn our attentions back to what's happening here in Maryland in the 147th edition of the Preakness Stakes. And I've been having a... A fairly lengthy chat with my NBC colleague, uh, Donna Brothers, herself a top uh, jockey back in the day and uh, latterly for the last couple of decades, uh, a brilliant post-race interviewer um, up and down the land and for all the Triple Crown races and the Breeders' Cup. And I began by asking her quite simply how she felt that this Preakness Stakes would shape up. Well, Epicenter, as we know, was the beaten favorite in the Kentucky Derby, ultimately went off it as the favorite, even though he wasn't in the morning line. And it's really his race to lose. The last time he raced at a mile and three sixteenths, Louisiana Derby, he won. If you go back to the Kentucky Derby and stop the race at the 16th pole, which would have been a mile and a three sixteenths, he's the winner. So it's really hard to find anybody to beat him in here. But it's certainly going to be a good race still, especially when you have the coach, Wayne Lucas, bringing in the uh, easy Kentucky Oaks winner in Secret Oath. And, and so there's going to be a lot of other horses and people to root for, but Epicenter's race to lose. Just for a, an international audience, clearly... D. Wayne Lucas is one of those people that transcends the nation where he operates and people have heard of him. But why does he mean so much to people here? What's been his sort of total contribution to the sport? Oh, gosh, Nick, you know, this is a, a, a story that uh, we sort of touched on earlier. The thing about Wayne Lucas is that I think a lot of people think that he's called the coach because he used to be a basketball coach when he... Um, before he was a horse trainer. But the reality is that what's endeared him to people in horse racing is the way that he has touched so many individuals. Certainly all of his assistant trainers could vouch for what a great mentor, a leader, a coach he's been, but many people could say the same thing. I know when I was a jockey and I rode for him, there were so many times that he would pull me aside and mentor me or coach me in ways that I never expected. And I certainly never had that sort of leadership from anyone else. And there are probably a hundred horse trainers on the backside or, or jockeys who never worked for Wayne Lucas officially who have that same story. And so over the years, he's just woven his way indelibly into all of our hearts. And we have such gratitude for just who he is. 
yeah, the warmth towards him after the Kentucky Oaks was was really quite striking. His former assistant Dallas Stewart was right up there in the box with him. He was almost more excited than than Wayne was himself, and to see his his grandson Brady there with him as well, so proud. It was a it was a really really special moment, and he he did seem to be really taking a deep appreciation of of it as well. I think he's at a time in his life, you know, at eighty six years of age, where he really does appreciate every single moment as the possibility of that could be the last great moment that he has like that but you know you touched on it to know Wayne Lucas is not necessarily to love Wayne Lucas because people who don't know him really really well don't understand the complexities but you know his drive his leadership his the inspiration that he has filled people with um, and again just the way that he's mentored and coached so many people and of course Dallas Stewart worked for him for a number of years and when Dallas Stewart went to work for him he was an exercise rider and he just galloped horses for Wayne Lucas but he galloped Winning Colors who was Wayne's 1988 Kentucky Derby winner. I was going to say that Winning Colors one of only three fillies to have won the Kentucky Derby. There have been three fillies to have won the Belmont Stakes one of whom was trained by Todd Bletcher another Lucas assistant and there have been six fillies to have won the, the Preakness Stakes two in relatively recent history Swiss, Swiss Skydiver a couple of years ago uh, so 12 in you know however many hundred editions of triple crown races there have been is that because it's inherently harder for a filly to beat the Colts or do you just think not enough have tried and Lucas has actually got the right idea well I think certainly in Europe there are fewer opportunities to separate the fillies from the boys and so uh, European trainers take every opportunity to just race wherever they feel like their filly or their mare fits but in the United States there's many more opportunities to separate the fillies from the boys and in grade one company and so it just takes that rare filly that that sort of speaks to a trainer like Wayne Lucas or Todd Fletcher or Steve Asmussen when he ran Rachel Alexandra and says you know what I'm good enough to beat the males of this generation and that's what Wayne would see in a horse like Secret Oath in order to take her take on the uh, the boys but again, you know, we'll find out on Saturday. How does a scenario shake down where she can beat a cult like Epicenter? Well, the speed has got to shape up. So early voting figures to be the, the, the horse that's going to set the early pace. Does Epicenter chase him this time? He got a little further back in the Kentucky Derby, but still ran a great race. There's no reason to believe that that's going to happen because Joel Rosario is going to be a board epicenter and he's a great judgment of pace. So there's no reason to believe that some sort of wicked speed duel is going to shape up. But if, if epicenter doesn't run his race and a couple of the other horses do get caught up in a speed duel on the front end, Secret Oath could easily be in a perfect position to pick up the pieces and win. And just as far as the absence of the Kentucky Derby winner is concerned, so few times in history has a Kentucky Derby winner elected not to run in the Preakness. Yeah, there have been injuries along the way, but you know, horses who have elected not to run in the Preakness, you can count quite literally on the fingers of one hand. Uh, the Rich Strikes Connections rolled six double sixes and came up with a, the Kentucky Derby against against all the odds, and, and they're not here. How, how do you as a as someone steeped in the game feel about this? Well, I'll tell you my initial impression, and I think many people steeped in the game will feel the same way my initial thought was there's something wrong with him because why else wouldn't he run back in the Kentucky Derby it's just such a part such a rich part of the tradition of racing in the United States if you have a shot to win the triple crown why not but then I went to Eric Reed's training center on the Friday after the Derby I watched Rich Strike train I talked to him and said you know typically how many days would he walk after a race and and what was his protocol for the Kentucky Derby and he said well normally I would walk him three days but 
he came out of the race on the second day. We walked him, took him out to graze, and he was shadow boxing with the groom. So we needed to get him back to the track on the third day. And I said, okay, I hear you say that, but then I also hear you say, but I don't think I can run him back in two weeks. And those seemed to be sort of counter positions. And he said, you know, Donna, did I think we could win the Kentucky Derby? I would be lying if I said, yes, I thought we were going to win. I thought we could have a top half finish. So if we ran in the top 10, the plan was to run back in the Belmont Stakes, and that was going to be his win. He said, what have there been, 13 Triple Crown winners? He said, I, I'm not naive enough to think that we're really going to have the 14th Triple Crown winner. And I think his best race is going to be in the Belmont Stakes, and I don't think shortening him to a mile and three sixteenths and running him back in two weeks sets him up for that race. I feel like he's sitting on a win on in five weeks. And I thought that was pretty decent logic. And he said, you know, how can I say I put the horse first if, in, in fact, this time I decide not to? Yeah, it's definitely logical. It's definitely efficient, isn't it? And it's yeah. it's quite quite clinical in a way. Right. And, and that was the surprising part because this Eric Reed grew up in horse racing. His father was a horse trainer. It was his lifelong passion. He knew by the time he was eight years old, he was going to be a horse trainer. Um, his father was telling me that his grades were so good, he could have gotten scholarship to whatever college he wanted to. But he said, why would I need to go to college to become a horse trainer? That's what I'm going to do. And I'm, that's what I'm going to do. And so this guy, born and raised in Kentucky, always wanted to do this in a position to be able to have a horse that would go into the immortal ranks in United States racing and folklore, and he passes up the opportunity. But again, what he did was put the horse first, and I think that is definitely commendable. Yeah. His head is definitely ruling his heart on this one, for sure. You, you work harder than just about anybody I know in this game. Your preparation and research for these races is, is second to none, and it shines through on every one of these broadcasts. And I've been lucky enough to work with you now for, well, over 10 years. I know it's raced by, hasn't it? Well, Nick, the reason why I work harder than anybody knows because I'm not as brilliant as people like you a and abso Brittany absolutely and Kenny untrue. Rice. Absolutely <laughs> untrue. Brittany and Kenny Rice are in this car as well as we're talking, and they're agreeing with me. And it really the reason it really struck me is because I was watching the broadcast back of the Derby, and you've got this ridiculous outsider winning with a jockey that, I mean, pretty well nobody's ever heard of. Um, hardly has a graded stakes ride, has come from absolutely nowhere, has given the horse a great ride as well. You're on horseback, so you're hardly in a, really in a position to see clearly what's even happened in the race. You have to collect your thoughts in that time, get to the right place, make sure you ask the right questions. In, in all your years, how challenging a, a, a job was that then, particularly with the horse trying to eat everybody? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I'll just talk about it as in general. Um, I used to think it was a liability that I couldn't see the race, but at one point I finally realized that at least in America, 90% of our viewers unless the horse was lame one two or three have no idea where the winner came from anyway so it behooves me not to know and then i can ask the jockey you know walk us through that early part of the race and sometimes they'll throw the replay in while we're talking but really the main reason for me to be there in the immediate aftermath of the race is to talk to the jockey while they're still in their heart and before they have a chance to get into their head so my first questions are always going to be around what this race means to you in your heart yeah we always used to say you get the glory then the story I try to, yeah, because I have found, you know, from doing this now for more than 20 years, that if I go straight to tell me about your trip, I've taken them into their head and I've lost the heart story. And, and we want to hear that, right? We all want to hear that. We want to know truly what it means to the rider. And if I gloss over that in the very beginning, we can't get back to it. And do you still get as big a kick out of it now as as you did when you started and when you, when you quit the saddle? <laughs> 
you know, swap, swap saddles, I should say. Yeah, I think that we all have felt this way at times. There are times in the two to three days before these big events, whether it's the Derby or the Breeders' Cup, that I'll say to myself, why do I do this? This is so hard. There's so much preparation. And then I get halfway through that day's event and I think, I am the luckiest person in the world that I get to do this, right? Because we get to be right there in the middle of, of people hitting career highlights and, and it's pretty amazing. Donna Brothers there with her thoughts on the Preakness Stakes, uh, which you'll be able to see on NBC and if you're in the UK on Sky Sports Racing tomorrow. And at UK time, the race is due off shortly after midnight. Jenny, we need to um, come back to a subject that Lydia and I addressed a couple of days ago on the podcast, which was the fine given to Kieran Cotter for a horse in his care testing positive for Cobalt. Um, he's had a fairly stern reaction to the fine he's been he's been given. What's your reaction to his reaction? He isn't contesting the guilty not guilty plea it's more that he is contesting the severity of the punishment just to refresh anybody's mind trainer he's been in the business 26 years with a license he was fined 27,500 euro in order to pay 7,500 in legal costs after being found guilty of serious misconduct by the IHRB he was fined 20,000 euro for failing to maintain his medical register and seven and a half thousand euro for rule breaches attached to the positive cobalt sample uh, taken from Slade Runner, who was subsequently disqualified from a Dundalk race, which was run in January of 2021. Quoting him from the Racing Post today, he's saying, you know, he had a he was fully cooperative and engaged with the inquiry from the outset. He's had a clean record uh, for over two decades, and he's therefore astounded at the severity and the dis disproportionate fines imposed on him and that's what he's appealing when you read the entire ihrb report which is published on their website the number of complaints which they found substantiated uh listed here are the presence of a large number of syringes and needles in the barn the apartment the apparent use of veterinary medicines other than under veterinary supervision which was suggested that mr cotter was self-medicating some of his horses in his care, used syringes and needles that were left lying in a number of locations on the premises, which Mr. Cotter stated he was not aware of where they were and did not know where they came from and said he'd never used them. And then the reckless disregard for the potential effects or consequences to administering the cobalt drench to Slade Runner in particular. Uh, Am I surprised he's appealing? No, but... The report doesn't read well, Nick. No, it doesn't read well at all. I mean, it is a big fine. It's a, it's an unusually large fine. There's no doubt about that, and it will have fairly significant consequences. You know, however much money you've got. However, there will be international listeners who will be thinking, "Hang on, if that had taken place, certainly in in the United States or um, in Australia, he'd be looking down the barrel of a of a." hefty ban never mind a a fine he's got runners this weekend I don't know how that's going to play and how that's going to go down but is he not somewhat fortunate that in Ireland he's he's escaped a ban you're not the only one in in that uh of that opinion I've spoken to a number of people on the matter and um a number of people have suggested that he may have been lucky to uh escape without uh suspension on his license um, but again, that's not for us to interpret now. It's a case of whether the IHRB uh, feel that the, the um, fines are proportionate or disproportionate. I can't remember reading, um, I often read the referrals when breaches of 
rules from stable inspections are listed and I've never read one quite like this so it doesn't come as a, as a surprise that the fines were quite as high as they were. Um, I know he'll argue that the threshold for which Slade Runner was over the limit of cobalt was only very fractional. I don't think that actually matters a lot. I think if you're over, you're over. Uh, I know the testing in the LGC labs are very sensitive, but they're sensitive for good reason so that we can keep the sport clean. So look, this, this will be ongoing. Yes, you mentioned he's a runner. Um, actually, on our opening race tomorrow, we're on RTE tomorrow, and it'll be on our opening race, and it'll definitely be a topic for conversation because it's something that's now in the wider media, not just in our own publications. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting case for all the wrong reasons. Okay, we ought to give the French jumping some love. It's their big weekend at Otoy, and it's not often you get a Cheltenham Gold Cup winner, let alone a dual Cheltenham Gold Cup winner having a bash at one of their big prizes. Yes, the Grand Steed de Paris is a feather in a cap that everybody wants. Uh, everybody in National Hunt, I want to get to the meeting. At some stage, I eventually will get to Otoy, but it just keeps bouncing off the Irish Guineas weekend, which isn't ideal. But uh, the Grand Steep de Paris is a, a real tough race. There's 16 declared runners this weekend, and Willie Mullins, who's never won it, is having a fair crack at it. He's got his dual Gold Cup winner album photo reunited with Paul Townend, uh, Borough Saint and Rachel Blackmore, the former Irish Grand National winner, he won that as a six-year-old. It's been a while between drinks for him. Could he do it and give her a historic win in the race? And Franco Deport and Danny Mullins, he's a grade one winning novice. So he's bringing three quality horses across. You've got Bill Durkin, Screaming Colours, who won the Midlands National in a ramp, a, roy, a riot even, at Utoxeter under Conor Orr. And Lord de Menil, Richard Hobson and Nick Schofield bring some British interest to the Grand Steep de Paris on Sunday and before that we have the French champion hurdle tomorrow eight declared runners classical dream was many people's punt at Cheltenham where he didn't stay Paul Townend won this race on Benny de Joe in 2019 can he back that up with classical dream Rachel Blackmore will be on Ken Boy a multiple grade one winner over fences reverting to hurdles to see if they can relight his fire which has diminished fractionally this season Tornado Flyer the surprise King George winner is reunited with Danny Mullins he will try and bring off a historic win for him and his uncle but look Autonomy, the brilliant mayor from France, she's the, leading the home brigade. She'll be very hard to beat, and I think she'll be many a, a, a warm favourite uh, to retain her crown in the French champion hurdle tomorrow. Well, if you were with us on the podcast yesterday, you'll have heard me talking to William Haggis, whose team are in irresistible form. And um, we were talking about Alan Kerr. He said he was desperate to win a Group One with this horse, and he might just do that in the Tattersalls Gold Cup at the Curra on Sunday. Now, Alan Kerr is owned by M&M Stables. Uh, their racing manager is Armando Duarte, who picked up this horse at Tattersalls for 80,000 guineas. Uh, Armando, very exciting that this horse is in with a, a chance of winning a Group 1 uh, on Sunday. Tell me a little bit about what first attracted you to him. To be honest, is I look at every single horse uh, at the sales, and when he came out, I still remember the box when he came out. When he came out, he was horses in class. And he has something about him. And in three strides, I just want to buy him. That was as simple as that. And after I just, I couldn't get out him out of my mind. And were you quite surprised that you could get him for 80,000 guineas? Did you think he'd make a lot more than that? Well, I always thought he would make more than that. But being by other flag, um, give him more chance. Um, I think he's, he's great value at Tartar Souls, um, book one. 
horses uh, between a bracket 75 to 150 um, to buy horses there for sure. And Adlerflug, of course, is a stallion that sadly is no longer with us. And really, there was a very short window where you could buy his stock before everybody realised he was he was something. And then by the time they realised he was something, he was gone. Uh, that is true. And uh, I'm, I wish I could say I knew that's going to happen. Uh, but I didn't. Um, as I bought them uh, as an individual, like I bought all my horses, I never look at the pedigree. I never look uh, what they can cost um, or not. Um, I just was lucky to buy them to be at the right time and the right place, I suppose. So you don't look at pedigrees at all. How do you whittle down a catalogue to decide which horses you're going to, to look at? Or do you just have to look at every single lot? I will look every single lot in the sale if it's possible. Um, some feelings with pedigree, I try to avoid them because I can, my clients are not, they're not keen in buying, buying Philly, so I try to avoid them. One slightly pedigree with a, uh, a chance to buy them, I look them. But most of them, uh, 90% of catalogue, I look every single horse. Well, already um, this horse, Alonka, has paid you back in, in, in spades. He's, he's won way more than, than the 80 grand he cost. And of course, he's got the 20,000 book one bonus as well, which he won. As a, as a two-year-old, um, in terms of what you think this horse is going to end up being, William Haggis said that he still thinks he's a mile and a half horse, but a lot of his good form is over a, a mile and a quarter, and he does seem to have acquired a bit of speed. I think uh, William is a trainer; he knows more than me. I'm just on the outside to look at. Uh, he's right; his best runs over a mile and a quarter. Um, he beat, he done the track record in the, the Winterfield uh, Derby trial. I think he got stronger. Um, he, I think he's between a mile and a quarter, a mile and a half. But he could be a, a mile and a half horse. If he could sustain that speed to a mile and a half, which I think he can, it could be exciting. But either way, he could go in. He can go in any ground as well. And if his numbers are, are very consistent. The last few runs just shows a, a, a very gradual but very notable um, curve of improvement. Tell me a bit about the owners, MM Stables. Their uh, pale blue and black silks are becoming quite a bit more familiar nowadays. Uh, they are. They are from Kuwait. Um, we only have uh, not many horses. We try to buy value for the horses. That's why we got book one. We incentive to buy, uh, you know, book one, bo- uh, book one bonus as well. Um, we go to another sales. Uh, they are nice people. They don't come racing very often, but they are, they are very enthusiastic. They are keen to get in the game, uh, and hopefully, we'll keep uh, buy some horses for success for them. It is Friday, which means we check in as we do every week with James Willoughby and the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. It's been a pretty dynamic week, and it's always exciting when we get a new number one. I know I'm giving it away, but here we go with the top ten. Down one at ten is the Australian Animo. Down one at nine is very elegant New Zealand-bred Australian trained shortly to be trained here in the Northern Hemisphere in France by Francis Graffard and could have the Jean Romanet as a departure point. Down one at eight is Euphoria for Japan. Down one at seven is the now-retired Nick's Go. Now, Zaki is down one at six, but he could yet climb because he's in tomorrow's Doom Ben Cup. 
for which he is an odds-on favourite, the race he won last year. Down one at five is the star sprinter Jackie's Warrior. He could take higher rank still, you fancy, in the United States this year. Life is good, not quite sure where he'll reappear. He's down one at four. Down one at three is Nature Strip, bound for Royal Ascot and the King's Stand Stakes. Down one at two is Golden 60. He's been deposed to his favourite cosy spot at number two, and he's been deposed <laughs> by, the, by the brilliant winner of the lock-in stakes, Baid, for William Haggis. And it's going to take an awful lot at any point in this year, James Willoughby, to knock old Baid off his perch, I'd say. Yeah, I would agree with that completely, Nick. And yeah, this is a great week to discuss. There's so much to go at. Um, we could devote a whole podcast episode to this, but I fear that might lose you listeners. Uh, I disagree because it is <laughs> intriguing. And the, the big debate as to how good Baid is and where his place in history will be has already started. And there's an excellent piece on Thoroughbred Racing Commentary by Graham Dench um, arguing the, the merits and demerits of comparing this horse to Frankel. Yeah, Graham's seen many good horses in his, his long career as a journalist, and it's well worth reading his this article on thoroughbredracing.com. It really does put it into context quite beautifully. To boil it down to one side, uh, one, one sort of instance of snapshot is that from a TRC ratings perspective, we consider by to be closer in merit to Frankel than anybody else does by a clear margin. I'll get into why in a second, but just to, to, to give some flesh to that. Timeform had the two horses 13 pounds, or have the two horses 13 pounds different. The official ratings have a difference of 15 pounds. Our difference is just, and uh, sorry, racing post ratings, I should add, is 14. So you've got 15, 14, and 13. Our difference is nine. Now, I would argue that we rate Baid closer to Frankel because we take something into account, which I don't think the other rating systems do. And that is the distribution of finishing positions behind a winner. That is a function of the run of the race and of the course. And in terms of the course, Newbury as a flat, fast track, of course, doesn't lend itself to winning marg large winning margins normally. But the biggest factor is the run style of the two horses. In the Northern Hemisphere, and specifically in Europe, the way that races are run leads to much wider winning margins than is the case in Hong Kong or Australia or on turf in America. It's really important to adjust the way you exchange distances at the end of the race for rating points to get that right. And not only do we do, we do that, but we actually implicitly uh, allow for the run style of a horse. And Frankel smashed up fields from the front, particularly when he ran over a mile, and they led to exaggerated margins. Now, Frankel is our highest rated horse of all time, which goes back to 2011 in our case, but I suspect he would have been one of the highest ranked horses if we'd started in 1811. And, and we rate him 138, which is about the same as, as the other ratings firms do. But we have a bigger figure on Baid, in effect, than some of them, because Baid is ridden patiently, or tends to be ridden slightly more patiently than Frankel did. And thus, in his races, the field tends not to finish quite so strung out. And his winning margin relative to others behind him, which is the important thing. So you take the lockage. Look at the finish of the lockage. You had a steady pace. You had a field finished fairly tightly bunched from second downwards. But look at his winning margin. So in that case, the, our computer says, well, uh, that's evidence that it was much harder 
to win by a wide margin than say if you got say 10 lengths, 12 lengths and 15 lengths, like in a three mile hurdle at Cheltenham or something. That is information that the run of the race allied to the conditions of the course stretched the field out and made it easy to gain ranking points in effect. In the lockings and in other races that riders run, uh, it's not been so easy. And so we would score his winning margins much wider than everybody else. And that's why we've got him closer to the great Frankel in terms of merit. And I would argue we've got it spot on because this is a phenomenal racehorse. I put it to you, Nick. He is a phenomenal racehorse and your ranking points total reflect the fact that he's going to be very difficult to depose, even if Golden 60 racks up another 17 uh, graded races in Hong Kong between Correct. now yeah. and the end of the year. There are quite a few notable movers on the back of last week. There's a reintroduction of modern games into the rankings. He'd been off a long time, so he'd slipped out of the rankings after that victory in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf. He came back with a really quite commanding win in the Poule d'Essay des Poulains, the French 2000 Guineas. He's now bound for the Prix de Jockey Club at Chantilly, which looks a great spot for him. James, where have you, where have you slotted him back in? Well, the computer makes him number 20 in the world, and his performance rate of 121 is just one point less than the computer gave to Coribus when he won the 2000 guineas at Newmarket. Now, I think from my own subjective human perspective that the two races are different, more different than that in terms of merit. There's a great deal of uncertainty over the French guineas. Remember what I've just said about Baid and his winning margins. Of course, uh, French racing, again, compresses the field compared to uh, British, British and Irish racing. And so Modern Games is now rated, or ranked, sorry, he's ranked highest of Charlie Appleby's three horses. That's the headline here. Uh, the computer places him at number 20 with Native Trail, last year's Dewhurst and National Stakes winner and the 2000 Guineas runner up at 23, and then Caribus at 26. Now remember why the computer does this. It's the portfolio of, ra of ratings that a horse produces, makes its ranking, and we're looking to reduce uncertainty over the merit of a horse. And what do you need to do to reduce uncertainty? You need to see more observations. So in the case of Caribus, three group race performances, one win in group one uh, class, one in group three. Compare that with Native Trail, who's got four. So less uncertainty over his merit. That's why he's above Caribus. But in the case of uh, modern games, he's three from three. So he hasn't been defeated, which the computer puts some store in. And again, that reduces the variance over how good he might be, and increases his upside as well. And that's why he comes in at number 20. So this is a horse that the TRC Computer Global Rankings has a very high opinion of, and uh, we look forward to seeing him in the French Derby next over a mile and a quarter. And the interesting point here is that Modern Games, Native Trail and Caribus are three of the top four Northern Hemisphere three-year-old mm. colts. Um, Modern Games and Native Trail um, are in 20 and 23, as you say, Caribus is at 26. Now, in amongst them, at 22, is the highest-rated American right. three-year-old epicenter, of course, who we've been hearing about from Donna earlier on in the programme, and ought to win tomorrow's Preakness Stakes. Yeah, this, this is a horse that Andy Bai would, would previously have described as a double fig. Two of his horse, two of his ratings are higher than anything else in the field. In, in one of his books, he amusingly called a triple fig as rare as, quotes an ivory-billed woodpecker. So epicenter isn't quite as rare as that. Maybe he's, a, I don't know, I'm not an ornithologist, but you can come up at home, you can come up with your own bird that he's as rare as. But either way, at number 22 in the world, he, we fully expect him to win this break the stakes. And he's in for a, 
a bit of a drop if he doesn't do it. Now, that's not to say that it's a weak field. Secret Oath, we have at 90. She's the Kentucky Oaks winner. We rated her performance 116, six points less than Epicenter's best effort. Epicenter ran to only 115 in the Kentucky Derby, but we all know the reason from that. For that, collectively, the jockeys lost their minds uh, at Churchill Downs, and he was one of the chief sufferers in going off too hard. We got early voting at 125 in the world. This is a horse with a 118 and a 117, building a nice portfolio for Chad Brown. And then simplification, the Florida Dog winners, 118, a 112, and a 109, which places them at 153 in the world. So it's epicenter 22 in the world, a clear lead over everything else that's lining up in front of your eyes at Pimlico, Nick. And um, do you agree? Do you think he'll do the business? Should do. He has to perform below his best significantly, I think, to, to, to not win this race. I think early voting is interesting with the freshness angle. Chad Brown's done it before. Um, owner grew up three blocks away. It's his 65th birthday. There's an awful, there's an awful <laughs> lot to suggest that uh, this yeah. could be a fairly well-hatched plan for Brown, whose horses, as always, are running very well. And I can't let this week go, James. And we've already pointed out horses who could do well in the rankings this week, Native Trail being the most obvious one and, and uh, Epicenter as well. But um, you can't let a rankings update go by without Zaki Watch, can you? He's, <laughs> he's sitting there proudly with his chest puffed out at number six. You can't keep him out of the top ten. And he's, he's got an absolute gimme in the Doombend Cup by the looks of it. Yeah, I've become the sort of number one global defender of, of Zaki due to his elevated position in the TRC Global Horse rankings. He's down one place this week at six from five. But I must point out he's won 11 group races now, which is no mean feat, is it? Including four group ones. Yes, some of those have been slightly softer than he might have encountered had he stayed with uh, Sir Michael Stout in the new market. But nonetheless, he's a horse who on other occasions, I would argue, has been a little unlucky as well. And when we talk about uncertainty and how that is important to us in the rankings, when you have run 22 times, your warts are far more obvious as a racehorse than these carefully uh, conditioned, carefully placed horses that run five or six times. And so dear old Zaki, yep, he's there from six to about 15 and has been uh, for a long time now and all power to him. Let's see. Let's hope he gets the, the job done for, for Annabelle Nisham, a, a and- podcast regular. Absolutely. And just to just to leave you in no doubt as to why Australian racing is the most popular racing in the world, of the top 50 horses in the thoroughbred racing commentary, global rankings, um, three of those have run 20 times or more, 27 yeah. runs for Very Elegant, 22 runs for Zaki, and 21 runs for Nature Strip. They run their horses, and that's why they keep the fans. Yeah, and listen to their ranks. Australian horses, that these are Australian horses that, that, that run there more than anywhere else. 3, 6, 9, 10, 15, 16, 17, 19, 25, 32, 41, 42, 43, and 46. Bingo! Now, that, yeah, that is not, has not been the case previously. So if you're thinking there's any kind of national bias in there, there isn't, honestly. Uh, the computer does everything it can to, to equalize the playing field. The, the fact is, and I keep saying this, and not everybody seems to agree with me, Australian racing is getting better and better, particularly at distances beyond sprints as well, which has traditionally been weak for them. If you look at some of the stallions standing down there now, they've got some a really impressive portfolio of uh, stallions who themselves were best at distances in excess of a mile. And so I think all you've got to do is wait before we start seeing some cracking horses 
um, at mile and a quarter. Well, I mean, historically, they've had some very good horses down there, and I think they're returning. And they've got the New Zealand breads allied to that, who are also having a good period as well. I think I, I cannot miss Australian racing each week. I love watching it first thing on Saturday morning, and I think it's more and more competitive. Well, thanks to James. Thanks to all my guests today. Uh, Jane Mangan is still with me. And Jane, I think you have some advice for us for the weekend. Some advice, perhaps. Maybe it's not worth following. But this evening, I like Boundless Ocean dropping back in class and going up to 10 furlongs. He didn't quite match the class that was required at Newmarket, where he was up with the pace, a little bit keen, and dropped away. But Boundless Ocean is a very nice horse. I've been watching him throughout his career, and I hope back in grade in the Hyder family stables, Gallinule Stakes. He might just be good enough to beat Hannibal Barca, who's an interesting recruit for Joseph O'Brien, Anchorage, Seisai, and Sussex in, in opposition. But the Curra this week is a fantastic spectacle, and let's hope we started on the right note this evening with Boundless Ocean. All right, Jane, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Friday the 20th of May. I will see you again on Monday morning. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.